My mother first tried to tell me about her life when I was about ten years old. I was sitting at the table doing homework or a drawing. She was standing at the grill cooking sausages. Every now and then, the fat from the meat would catch and a flame would leap out. She had been threatening some kind of revelation for years. One day I will tell you the story of my life, she said, and you will be amazed. I had looked at her in amazement. The story of her life was she was born, she had me, ten years past, end of story. Tell me now, I'd said. I'll tell you when you're older. A second later, I'd considered saying, am I old enough now? But the joke hadn't seemed worth it. Anything constituting a life story would deviate from the norm in ways that could only embarrass me. I knew, of course, that she had come from South Africa and had left behind a large family. Seven half-siblings, eight if you included a boy who died, ten if you counted the rumour of twins. You should have been a twin, said my mother, whenever I did something brilliant, like open my mouth or walk across a room. I hoped you'd be twins, with auburn hair. You could have been. Twins run in the family on both sides. And my stepmother was pregnant with twins once. There were no twins among her siblings. She always referred to her like this, as my stepmother, and unlike her siblings, for whom she provided short but vivid character sketches, and even her father, who featured in the odd story, Marjorie was a blank. As for her real mother's family, all she would say was, strong women, strong genes, and give me one of her looks, a cross between, nobody knows the trouble I've seen, and abandon all hope ye who enter here which shut down the possibility of further discussion. It wasn't evident from her accent that she came from elsewhere. In fact, years later, a colleague answering my phone at work said afterward, Your mother has the poshest voice I've ever heard. I couldn't hear it, but I could see it written down in the letters she drafted on the backs of old gas bills. It was there in words like satisfactory, great English compliment, and peculiar, huge insult. Diana, she wrote to her friend Joan in 1997, such a pretty girl, but such a sad life. She was imperiously English to her friends and erstwhile family in South Africa, but to me, at home, she was caustic about the English. The worst insult she could muster was, you're so English. I was English. I was more than English. I was from the home counties. I played tennis in white clothing. I went to brownies. I didn't ride a horse. My mother thought horses an unnecessary complication. But I did everything else commensurate in those parts with being a nice girl. This was important to my mother, although she couldn't help hinting now and then at how tame it all was. Call that sun, she said, when the English sun came out. Call that rain. When I got bitten by a red ant on sports day, my mother inspected the dot while I started to sniffle. For goodness sake. All that fuss over such a tiny little thing. Where she came from, any ant worth its salt would kill you. Among the crimes of the English, coldness, snobbery, boarding schools, tradition, the royals, hypocrisy, fat ankles, waste and dessert, or pudding, as they called it, a word she thought redolent of the entire race. The English, she said, are a people who cook their fruit. It was her greatest fear that she and my dad would die in a plane crash and I would wind up in boarding school alone, 
eating stewed prunes and getting more English by the day. If I'd had my wits about me, I might have said, oh right, because white South Africans are so beloved the world over. But it didn't occur to me. It didn't occur to me until an absurdly late stage that we might, in fact, be separate people. Above all, she said, the English never talked about anything. Not like us. We talked about everything. We talked a blue streak around the things we didn't talk about. My parents met at work in the 1960s at the law firm where my dad was doing his articles and my mum.